So I'm going to continue on with a sermon series that they've been going through with uh, the ways of Jesus and how to live in the ways. And uh, we've been talking about things such as sacrifice and patience and compassion. And today I want to look at Jesus and I want to look at the characteristics that he had um, and the fact that he was very bold and aggressive in addition. Sometimes we think about Jesus, and sometimes with the way that the media has portrayed him, we think of Jesus and his group of hippies walking around, talking to people, healing people, and doing that. And that's that's part of it, just that way that Jesus is this peaceful dude. But when we look at the Bible, not only was he a God of peace, but he was also coming down as a mighty warrior. And we have to look at the fact that when he came down, he had a hit list, and he proceeded through his hit list. And as you study the Gospels, and as I read them over and over and over and over and over, he had things that he had to do, and he got them done. And he was very bold. He was very aggressive with it. And so, also, because it is the month of October, and this is the month where people like to throw and worship fear in our faces, um, and this is appropriately timed um, right around the season where people indulge in that. So before I get into it too far, I want to go through a quote from C.S. Lewis. I always like throwing this one in there. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And that's kind of where we find ourselves Um, even more so on the the side of the materialist. And what he's saying there is there are people that ignore the unseen realm completely, and there are people that overindulge in the unseen realm, and they, they lose stuff in the process of the overindulgence. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying either either way, when people go to those extremes, the demons win. And so what I want to do is just remind people that there's a balance to this. This stuff is all real. It exists, but we need to be careful not to focus on it. But at the same time, we have to also um, be able to set what's real spiritually away from the superstitious um, on both sides. Um, Just starting out with it, when Jesus started his ministry, he had specific things he needed to accomplish. The Hebrews were waiting for specific things to happen in the spiritual realm and specific things that were going to happen in the physical realm. And uh, one of the titles that they give Jesus is the Son of David. And with the Second Temple context, when they, when they refer to him as the Son of David, they're not only referring to his genealogy, but they were referring to the title of Son of David. That had a um, spiritual warrior aspect to it. In the Second Temple, they believed that David and Solomon both had the ability to deal with demons. And so there's a lot of that. Uh, in Second Temple text. And so when they're referring to Jesus as Son of David, they are talking about the genealogy, but they're also talking about the fact that he's got that authority over the spiritual. So they're waiting for that Son of David. They're waiting for the, the you know, if you get into that deeper with the Messiahs that they're waiting for, they're waiting for the Son of Ben-Joseph. They're waiting for the Son of David. And both of those had very, one was very earthly Messiah, one was very spiritual Messiah. So as we go into this, Jesus is coming in, he's coming in as the son of David. And he came to right the wrongs and reverse many things. He was setting the stage for the rest of eternity. 
Um, He came, he saw, he conquered. When Jesus came, what he did in the spiritual affected eternity. It's done. Those three years that he spent, everything changed. He is an example of how to aggressively wrestle with the problems we encounter still today. I also want to note, because we've been talking about the ways of Jesus, we've been talking about the patience and the compassion, we've been talking about the sacrifice, how Jesus interacts with evil spiritual beings is much different than how he interacts with humans. And I think that it's very important that we realize that. And when we deal with people that might be demonized or we feel like we're dealing with people that are running a demonic agenda, understand that in the case of Jesus, he was going to love that person. He was going to have a relationship with that person. He was going to treat them as a human because he knew what was behind them is what he hated. And so, especially right now, because we're in the the whole fling of not only the the Halloween season and dealing with that stuff, but also dealing with um, the election season and all that's coming up with that, sometimes people have the, they kind of sit around and they're getting inundated by all that gross stuff coming in through the election thing. And they start thinking these thoughts about other humans that are children of God. They may not be saved, but they're still people that Jesus loves. And what we need to be careful of is that when we're thinking about these people, that that anger, that hate, anything that resides up, anything that is not godly, we're not directing it towards the the people. It's the spiritual ideas. It's the philosophies behind it. I'm convinced that many of our politicians that I may think are doing some very horrible things I think that they're just blind. They've just bought into a system. They've bought into a way of thinking. And so I don't, you know, I, probably some of them had made, have made deals with spiritual powers, evil spiritual powers too. So I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm just saying in most cases, I think people are just blinded and they've bought in. So we need to be very careful in our hearts um, while we're talking about this and talking about Jesus' example. Jesus was dealing with this stuff, and he was loving the people. But he was always, there was, there was no patience for the evil spiritual beings. There was no compassion for the evil spiritual beings. There, there's, we give no quarter in that, but we need to be careful with how we treat the people. First thing Jesus does, which I enjoy, is he comes out, and we've, we've talked about typology a little bit before, but we'll talk about the typology like Moses and a new Israel right now, because the first thing he does is when it's time to get going, He goes and he gets baptized. And so then after he's baptized, he's led into the wilderness, and then he faces the temptations. And I think that there's a total shift here for us to look at, where it's like he's redeeming the Exodus process. And the Exodus process, the Hebrew people repeatedly screwed up. And the Exodus was kind of a, God accomplished what he needed, but it took 40 years instead of what should have been a couple-month journey. And Jesus reverses that. And part of Jesus' reversal of that is actually taking on to those spiritual powers, the influences that the Hebrews did in the desert. So when you look at Jesus in his initial time in life, kind of look at it like a new exodus. The parallels are there. Um, he kind of corrects that journey, and he kind of takes the whole chaos from the original exodus, and he straightens it out. So he has his baptism, and we kind of look at the baptism like the Hebrew people going through the Red Sea. Right? They're, they're going through water as always, they look at water as chaos. When you get baptized, you're going under. It's like you're going under into the underworld, into the chaos. And when you're coming back out, you're coming back out new and fresh, alive, with your new body, who you really are. 
You've abandoned that darkness. That's, that's the symbolism of the dunking and coming up. But the Red Sea, it was they were supposed to be leaving Egypt behind. Whatever they had picked up in Egypt was being left behind as they come through the water. And they're trusting in God. And that's how it was. Jesus, he comes up out of the water. God makes the declaration of who Jesus is, instills that identity. Then immediately after the Red Sea, the Hebrews get led into the wilderness. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, it says the Bible says he was led into the wilderness. He's led into the desert. The desert was always the domain of the evil. It was, it was the desert where, where the evil things lived. The wilderness, that's where the spooky stuff lived. It's where the darkness lived. In fact, when they would do, we won't teach too much on this, but when they, when they would do sacrifices originally, they would send, there were actually two, there were two animals that were to be, to be offered. There was the, the animal that they offered with the Hebrew people, and then there was a second animal that they offered. Kind of, they called it the scapegoat, but it was a goat sent out into the wilderness. And it was sent out to Azazel, who lived in the wilderness, who was a demonic figure. And that's a strange thing, but that's what the desert is. It was this place, the symbo- sim- like the symbology of the evil that was there. So as the Hebrews went into the desert, Jesus is led into the desert. And as Jesus is led into the desert, he is tempted with the same stuff. Same stuff the Hebrews got tempted with. First thing the Hebrews got tempted with, they started judging God because they, were, they didn't have food. And so what's the first thing Satan brings to Jesus? Hey, bow down and worship me. I'll provide you with food. I can turn these into something for you. And so Jesus and the Hebrew people both deal with that lack of food, but Jesus resists. And when Jesus resists and he quotes scripture, he quotes right out of Deuteronomy. For every time that he he responds to Satan, and we'll read this here, but every time he responds to Satan, he's actually quoting passages from the Exodus, which is fun. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, ooh, the symbology there too. How many years in the desert? 40. How many days did Jesus stay in the desert? 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think that's like Deuteronomy 6 something. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan's quoting out of Psalms to Jesus saying, hey, he'll take care of you. And then Jesus goes back into the passage from the Exodus and he responds, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus does a mini exodus, and he passes all those tests. Don't tempt God. Don't tempt Yahweh. Throw yourself. God will take care of you. Why are, you know, and Jesus is like, no. He quotes the Deuteronomy again. You do not tempt God. Taking the, na- the nations through the submission to Satan. He was going to take the nations the way that he was supposed to take the nations, not by bowing to Satan. Satan fails. When you are tempted, 
Quote scripture. Quote godly beliefs. Lead the blood of Jesus over your mind and quote what the Bible says. That's the best way to take on those temptations. Sometimes it can be really hard, but if we get into that mode of doing it, following the way of Jesus in that, it's much easier. So he's baptized. He goes through the temptations. Opening shots are fired. He's having communication with Satan in the place of evil. He beats Satan in that round, and he's ready to move on. So now he immediately leaves the desert, and he doesn't waste time. He goes to Nazareth. He starts to preach in Nazareth right away. Nazareth is not happy about their hometown dude coming and doing this. So the, the reception to Jesus is very poor. And Jesus, he moves to Capernaum, picks up some more disciples on the way. And as soon as he picks up disciples on the way and he gets to Capernaum, the immediate confrontation of darkness in Hebrew territory and then eventually in Gentile territory begins. He's not wasting time. He does all this in three years. But he starts it very quickly. He is consistently, from this point on, facing and defeating darkness. You can't get through any of the Gospels without the confrontation of demons and other evil spiritual beings. Uh, he doesn't ask permission when dealing with them. He doesn't come gently. He, just, he doesn't politely ask. He just comes and he does the business of the kingdom. And so Mark 1, 21, this is starting right after the temptations in the desert. And after Nazareth, they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was, face, and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was one in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of, the Holy one of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they had questions amongst, among them, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick, or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various demons and cast out many, or with diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He had complete authority over the demonic. And he was making good time in dealing with it. Staying right now in the Hebrew territories. He's going to leave the Hebrew territories because he's up in Capernaum. And I've got a map here. Let me see if I can find my map. All right, Sea of Galilee is labeled up there. But up there on the Sea of Galilee, it's a little scrunch. Um, Capernaum's up on the northern shore of that, well, the north, northwestern shore of that. So that's where Jesus is operating out of. So he's up at the tip of uh, what would be Jew territory, Hebrew territory. And he's going to uh, he's gonna spread around. He's going to go across the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go into Gentile territories. The Decapolis, uh, what was once part of, there were parts of Israel there. Uh, the Decapolis, it means 10 cities. That's the, the Greek for it. There's, there's 10, 
like free city-states that are living in the Decapolis, and those are Gentile cities. So when he, um, when he goes across the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, he's going over into Gentile territory. Um, and they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tomb, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. When he saw Jesus from afar, I'm guessing what was inside of him recognized Jesus probably before Jesus even got off the lake. And he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. First thing I thought was interesting is just back in Mark 1, when he's in Hebrew territory, the demons are referring to him as Jesus of Nazareth. But when he goes into Gentile territory, Jesus's higher title is known as son of the most high God. The spirits know he is son of Yahweh. He is there. Um, and they're worried about what they know is their future, right? We talked about the origin of demons way back, and demons are stuck on the earth, and they'll be on the earth until the time that they're thrown into the lake of fire. And so they're worried about being tormented and thrown into the lake of fire because that's where they're heading. And they know Jesus is the man that can do that. And for he was saying to them, Jesus talking to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, drowning in the sea. So they're talking about the Sea of Galilee. Um, it didn't go well for them. The fun part of this, if you know the historical context with the demons and where the, the Jews believe demons came from, demons were the leftover spirits of the Nephilim from Genesis 6. They were the ones stuck to Rome on the earth, and they were killed in their earthly bodies by a flood. So the spirits, they lost their earthly bodies to the water. And now they went into the pigs. And now the pigs have just dumped them into the water again. So it's like a, it's like a Jesus gotcha. It's like, sure, you can go into the pigs, but this is what the pigs are going to do. And now you're going to drown again. And uh, it's just kind of fun. Jesus kind of, Jesus played them. Uh, Mark five fourteen, continuing the story. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Part of the reason they're afraid is because they are Gentiles and they are worshiping other gods. And I am guess, based on the beginning of the story, they've done what they can to help this man who had all these spirits inside him. And their gods had no way to do what Jesus had just done. 
So now they see this man sitting there. He's healed, completely sane. And they realize that what they have in front of them is a power that is much higher than anything they've touched before. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So he turned him into an evangelist for Jesus. And he went all around these Gentile cities talking about Jesus, son of the most high. So Jesus is already ministering to the Gentiles. It's already going on with the Decapolis. So let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about his mission and decisions he make that he makes. Uh, advancing his mission, first to the Jews. Paul quotes later on, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And that is how Jesus set it up. Jesus initially did his preaching and ministering in the Hebrew lands, then he went out to the Gentile lands. Uh, Luke 9, 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The twelve disciples most likely symbolize the twelve tribes of Israel. And at this time, he is sending them out to Israel. So the disciples scatter out and minister for Jesus in Israel to the tribes, first to the Jews. Then in Luke 10, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And I think that that is a spiritual connotation. I think that he knows that what he is doing is he is sending these wolves that have been preying on humanity for 3,000 years, 4,000 years, are going to get something that they have never gotten before. And he knows that he's sending his disciples out there to combat this. And then later in Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Again, this is kind of, C.S. Lewis kind of uh, retools this in that quote I gave at the beginning. Jesus is saying, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons are leaving and that you have power over them, but rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven, that you are with my Father. Don't focus on, again, you're not focusing on the evil. You're focusing on the fact that, that your place is now with Yahweh. Jesus has put that for, for you. Uh, and in this, what's, what's fun is that the 70, depending on your translation, some translations split up two countries into other countries. So some translations have 70, some have 72. Uh, that's referring way back to Genesis 10, where it gives the, the table of nations, there's 70 nations. And so when Jesus picks his number the second time, he's sending them out to the Gentile nations. The 12 disciples go to the 12 tribes. The 70 go out to the 70 nations. Jesus is going down his hit list. 
He's doing everything he came to do. He is very aggressive in what he's doing. Uh, Capernaum gave him great roads and access to Hebrew and Gentile communities. Um, there's also, uh, they said that when he moved to Capernaum, it's, it's to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah where it says light will go and dwell among the darkness. Um, because some, for so long, the northern part of Israel, you get into Dan, you get into some bad history. Uh, it was pretty dark up there. It becomes the hub for ministry, and it's also right next to the geographical center of darkness in the ancient Near East. And we're going to talk about that. Um, we see the Sea of Galilee a lot. Something you need to know about the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is from, from, and I'll show you a map, from Mount Hermon. That's where the waters of the Jordan come down. It's the, the streams where they go in to fill the Jordan River. The Jordan River goes down. Um, again, it's just a bad map for size-wise. But the, the river starts, you'll see the river starts above, above the Sea of Galilee. It goes down into the Sea of Galilee. Then it goes down. The Jordan River continues to go down into the Dead Sea. Um, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea were considered, even before the Hebrew time, to be geographical places where you could enter into the underworld. The whole Jordan River tributary system, there was a lot of shrines and gateways. They believed that that was how um, you could enter the spiritual underworld. So that's where Satan and his crew found their habitation when Satan's cast into the, the earth, to the underworld. Um, so they believed that. And so the Sea of Galilee... Um, it's kind of a, there was, there was some fear with it. So when you see it and they're using it, the other thing with Sea of Galilee is because of the, the climate, it's very, um, it's very tropical actually there around the Sea of Galilee. It's really nice land. And because of the, the mountains and the different winds from the Mediterranean, storms could get crazy and deadly really, really quick. Really quick. So, so it's a really rough lake at times. It can just split like that. Um, so there's that chaos element to the Sea of Galilee in addition to what they believed other pagan nations, and even the Hebrews believed was what was underneath the Sea of Galilee. Um, so it's kind of fun, like when you look at stories now with Jesus and the Sea of Galilee and what he's doing with the Sea of Galilee, the symbology, he's, he's, he's firing points at us. Um, in Mark 6.45, this is the stormy Sea of Galilee, one of the instances Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost." The translation of that would be shade or spirit. They thought, based on what we know about the Sea of Galilee, they thought one of the spirits from the underworld had come up probably and was walking on the sea, was walking next to them, one of these evil entities. So they're freaking, and that's what it says. They thought it was one of those shades, and they cried out, for they would saw him, and they were terrified. They, they had no clue. They thought it was something gross from the underworld. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, because this is after they had fed, but their hearts were hardened. So Jesus, again, 
This idea of him being on the water and taking chaos and making chaos come to order. And especially the location of the Sea of Galilee. As a side note, do you know where the lowest place on earth is? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. So it's kind of interesting that they thought that the Dead Sea was also one of those places where you could enter the underworld. Even then, back then, though, they didn't know that geographically it was the lowest place on earth. Um, just kind of fun. Uh, another Sea of Galilee miracle. This time it's after Jesus comes back. He is resurrected. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. The Romans named it the Sea of Tiberias. And revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So he's got disciples there with him together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. So they cast it, and now they were able, not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of the fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare asked him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord, Jesus Christ, and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I think the symbology of this story with the Sea of Galilee and what we know about it being the place, that chaos, that dark, is that they were getting, there was no harvest. No harvest, and Jesus told them, do the right side, and with Jesus' help, they, a maximum harvest of what they could get out of the chaos, out of the darkness, out of that place, there's harvest in the darkness. And that's where we're supposed to fish. We need to take those fish out of the harvest. And I think that that's, that's kind of what the story is revealing here. Also in this location where Jesus went to go, he took the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And I've talked about this before. We'll, just hit, we'll go through this pretty quickly. Caesarea Philippi is up in a region called Bashan. Bashan is up north. It is in the area where Dan is located. The tribe of Dan went and the, the history of the tribe of Dan is all a thing. That's something else to get into. Um, Bashan is the Hebrew translation for the Ugaritic Bataan, which is actually the place of the serpent or place of the dragon. And uh, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi was up at the foot of Mount Hermon, which we'll talk about. Um, one of the headwaters source for the Jordan River actually flows out of those rocks there. And Hermon derives its name from Haram, or Haram, which meant to devote to destruction. So when, when um, the word used in the conquest, back with Joshua, is the word Haram, or Haram, it is to devote these certain people to, dis- to complete destruction. And uh, 
That was the word used during the conquest for that area too. Historically, um, in Hebrew tradition, this is the place where the watchers made their oath. Uh, the Genesis 6 story of the sons of God coming down in rebellion, mating with the wives of men. And that's where you get your Nephilim and you get into that whole, that whole story. Um, Mount Hermon is the place where it happened. Um, that's the mountain they came down and fulfilled their oath. Um, it's always been historically, if you look through different textbooks for the ancient Near East, for whatever reason, this mountain, everyone's putting their temple there. Everyone's putting temples up there. At one point, there's like 20 different temples to different gods right here and uh, right around Caesarea Philippi. Um, even the apostate King Jeroboam built an idolatrous worship center there back when the Hebrews started worshiping Baal and going along that route. Um, and they would sometimes refer to it as Mount Baal Hermon. Um, the Greeks, when the Greeks had colonized that area, they called it Panias. They named it after Pan. They said it was the birthplace of Pan. Little satyr guy, he's got his little flute and he does lots of drunken sex stuff. And that was his place. Um, Herod the Great built a temple there when Herod was there to commemorate, because you worship Caesar if you're Roman. The idea was you needed to worship your emperor. And so you worshiped Caesar there. So it is a place of idolatrous worship through and through and through for all of history up into the current time where Jesus is there. Also located not very far from this, this is about 6,000 years old. It possibly is one of the oldest. It's older than Stonehenge. This is in Israel. Um, this is what's left of the Wheel of Shades or the Wheel of Giants. This is where they said the Raphaim, which were a tribe offspring of the Nephilim. This is where they were burying the dead kings of old. And so this is supposed to be a really nasty place. People would stay away from it. Uh, there's actually graves built in uh, archaeology. We'd call these dolmens. There's dolmens built in around the back. Um, they've actually discovered, and they're starting to look at it, because of Google Earth, they found a serpent mound there. So if anybody knows about the serpent mound in Ohio, um, it is a mound that is actually built in the shape of a serpent, and there would be a cultic worship there. There's one in Ohio. It's fairly big. You can get it on Google Maps. You can see it. It's actually... And they, I think because of weather and because of having Google Maps, they actually found a serpent mound slightly north of this. It's not very far from it, which would make sense because people back in the day called it the place of the serpent or the dragon. So... Um, so there's your serpent mound. It's bigger than the serpent mound we have in America. It's bigger than the one in Ohio. Um, but the proximity between this and the circle of the giants is actually the same proximity between Ohio's serpent mound and a wooden Stonehenge that they found in Ohio. So it's interesting, two completely sides of the world with geographical features created in the same way. Um, but that's up in Bashan. That's by Mount Hermon. Uh, a lot of Baal worship at the time. Who is or what is Baal? Uh, Baal is considered to scholars to be the Old Testament counterpart to the devil. It's kind of um, the adversary as a spiritual being. They would refer to him as Baal. And in Ugaritic, which is a language that's close to Hebrew, it's what the Canaanites spoke, uh, one of Baal's titles is Prince Baal of the Underworld or Baal Zabul which is what they, they try to accuse Jesus in the Old Testament of being Beelzebul, Beelzebub. Um, but it means Lord of the Underworld. It's, it's Prince Baal of the Underworld. So if you have this location 
It's, it's like kind of what the Jews are thinking. This is, this is where Satan's hanging out. If he's hanging out in a geographical location underground, which they believed, it's a spiritual view. Um, Baal's the guy, and this is where he hangs out. Talking about Pan, this is also supposed to be the birthplace of the spiritual being Pan. In ancient Greek religion and mythology, Pan is the god of the wild, shepherds, flocks, uh, nature of mountain wilds, rustic music, impromptus, and the companion of nymphs. He has the hindquarter legs. So, all this is just enough to say. When you look, think about how people portray Satan these days, there's the horned guy. There's the horned guy. That's where the old Satan with the horns and the tail and the poker come from. So, I don't think Satan has horns and a tail and a poker, but I don't know. I talk to Satan, so... Uh, so that's, that's, that's just the, that's the background there of that location. Um, so much worship. There's also a big temple to Zeus right there too. And in the time of, uh, in the time of Christ, the temple of Zeus was still there also. Uh, Matthew 16. So here's the story. We've looked at this before, but this is just great because this is Jesus going down his hit list. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevent prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, on this rock, the Catholics take the on this rock, and they say that Peter is that rock, right? And that's where they get their popes. They say that because Christ said we're going to build on Peter, he is the, therefore the first pope, and this is the verse that they, that they take Peter as the first pope in the succession. Um, Protestants do not take it that way. I don't take it that way. What is the rock? I think the rock is right there. I think what Jesus is saying is that the church is going to be built on the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. This is where Jesus is talking. So right there is what it looked like based on descriptions from um, historical books about Jesus' day, the one on the left there. Um, you have the Temple of Pan, you have the Temple of Zeus, and you have also the worship to Caesar. Those were the three temples where they were located right next to each other. Um, during the Israeli wars, back in the Six-Day War, uh, they decimated the place. And so there's, there's not much left but ruins. And so what you get on the right side, so you do get to see kind of the tributary. They, they made sure that the Jordan's still running through there. But um, all that's left is that hole. So you can see the hole in the back of the one temple. Uh, that, was a, that was a gateway to the underworld. Supposedly, if you continued to go down that cave, you could go meet those things that you didn't really want to meet. And so they built stuff there because people were not to proceed down there. You didn't want to proceed down there. And so Jesus is there. He's at that rock. I believe that when Jesus is saying, this is the rock I'm going to build the church on, I believe that, yes, there's some play of words on Peter's name mean, meaning rock. But I think what Jesus is saying, because he distinctly says the gates of hell 
will not prevail. He's at the gates of hell. This is where people thought the gates of hell were. That, that cave was supposed to be a gate to hell. And I think that's what he's saying. The gates of hell will not prevail. This worship, this idolatrous worship, this worship of all these fallen beings that these people are doing here, you're going to convert them. The kingdom is going to be based on taking from darkness. We're going to take this back. And that's what he's saying. And he stays there. It says he stays there. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on that third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it for you from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus reveals to him who he is, what we're going to do, and he lays out his mission. And it says that they stay for there for six days before they go up. They actually are going to go up Mount Hermon. What I think is fun about this, and what's good for us is to know we're far from perfect. Peter goes from earlier in the discussion to her flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. Peter's hearing from God. He's hearing from Holy Spirit. To mid-conversation, Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. That happens to us. We hear things wrong. It's quick. But, uh, but Peter hangs in there. So after six days being in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this, and they fell on their faces and were terrified. But when Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Jesus, let's not forget the symbolism of this mountain. He goes up on the mountain where the spiritual beings came down, where the spiritual beings were dwelling. He goes up and he is transfigured in front of all of that spiritual climate. And he shows who he really is in the spiritual realm. The bright lights, the spiritual body of Jesus. The disciples behold that. And as long with the disciples beholding that, all the other spiritual beings are also watching that. And it was like the last shot fired because after this, it's just the journey to Jerusalem to die. So now they're on to them. They don't know the plan, but they're on to them. Uh, just going back into tradition, because some people like to say that Mount Tabor was the traditional. Uh, Mount Tabor is further south. Like Caesarea Philippi is up there at the top next to Mount Hermon, or Mount Mount Tabor is like down below, and uh, that doesn't make sense why he would travel all the way down to that mountain when the highest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon, and he's right there. Um, found out that the only tradition that it was Mount Tabor back in the day is that Constantine's mother just decided that that's where it happened. And so tradition is just so that it happened there. It happened at Mount Hermon. It makes sense. Um, they did some archaeology up on the mountain. They went to the summit of the mountain. And while they were up on the summit of the mountain, they actually found a limestone stele, which your, your steles are those, uh, usually they're like obelisk, and they've got like inscriptions on them. 
Uh, they found one back in 1869 on the top, and they finally translated it, and it translated to say, according to the command of the greatest holy God, those who are here or those who take an oath proceed from here. So it just throws some, throws some connection back to that original story that the Jews have been believing for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, Jesus just goes there, and he's, he sets up. This is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. Um, that's Mount Hermon. It's pretty. Sea of Galilee right there. Mount Hermon in the background. They have a bunch of ski resorts there now. And a UN viewing station. At the summit now, instead of temples, there's a UN viewing station. And uh, it's a vacation place now. So vacation there at your, at your own risk. Um, Jesus was calculated and bold. Jesus took the battle straight to the kingdom of darkness. The Gospels are full of even more examples of this. Uh, we do not fight a defensive war. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, that is an offensive saying. You are assaulting the gates. The gates don't stand. It's not the gates of hell are not going to prevail. The gates don't move towards you. You know, you're not, the gates aren't coming at you. Um, it's not a defensive war. He is our general. He is a mighty warrior. He is strong in battle and offensive. We do not fight against men. Just reiterating this. We're not fighting against other humans. We do not go after people. We should go after demons and the other spiritual beings behind those people. Whether they're completely agreeing and consulting those things or whether they're just completely blinded, Jesus didn't say, swing a sword physically. And we know Peter tried to swing a sword and Jesus had to reheal the ear. Jesus is not about hurting the human. Jesus is about hurting what's behind that. Um, and so that's Jesus, bold and aggressive. That's what I wanted to go through today. I thought it was a good message for this time. Uh, this time that we are in the world. There's a lot of darkness out there. We're in that season of darkness that always comes up in October, and people have a hard time with that. And it, it happens to a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of people that October is rough, and there's some kind of weird spiritual underpinning to, to this time of the year. And um, just be bold and aggressive like your Savior, warrior king who came down to help you. And uh, just, just fight and hold on when things come up against you. And so I want to pray. And I want to pray about that. And uh, so you just join me. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we recognize you as the son of Yahweh. Jesus, you are the Son of the Most High. There is no higher than you. Everything is smaller compared to you. And Lord, you are magnified as the others are lessened, the spiritual beings. And we repeat the Old Testament, we repeat the Song of Moses, and we say there are no other gods like you. Jesus, you are it. And Jesus, where we are battling, whether we're battling things through an ideological stance or whether we're directly having to battle physical interactions with the spiritual, Lord, I just ask that you would just help us in the combat. And again, we just, we just plead the blood of Jesus over all of us. And we don't do this in fear, Lord, but we do this in the understanding that we need to take it seriously what you've done what you started, what you finished. 
And Lord, that as, as you finish certain things, we still have to deal with the residuals until everything is justly placed into that lake of fire. So Lord, if we're if anyone in here dealing with that right now, Lord, we just come up against the darkness. Holy Spirit, give us strategies to join in with Jesus. Give us those strategies from heaven to understand what's going on around us. And again, Lord, we just pray for peace in all of our homes. Peace in us, peace in our homes. Lord, we know you dwell within us. So, Lord, we just ask for a release of those strategies. We ask for a release of that right now, Lord. And Lord, as we engage with our community, let us engage with that darkness. Let us fight that darkness. Let us love the people and fight the stuff behind them. Lord, that they might belong and become believers. They would step into the light. Jesus, we just again thank you for your victory. Thank you for the victory on the cross. We thank you for the victory within that resurrection, the fact that you sit with the Father. We look forward to your return when you come and you end it. But until that time, Lord, just continue to give us strength, please. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in belief in your name, Lord. Amen.